the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website, www.thebiblelive.com, or Mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Sophie Dollar. Jake was alongside, and we are ready to get started on another exciting adventure, (laughs) an exciting Sunday night offering here on the Bible Live. We're making our way right now, well, of course, through the entire Bible every year, but this last week in our Bible reading program, Monday through Friday, if you turn into this channel, you'll hear the entire Bible read for you. To you, in fact, every Sun, every Monday through Friday, we read a 15 to 20 minute reading every weeknight, the entire Bible every year. And we are we find ourselves right now in the books. Well, we're making a little jump this past week. We read the final chapters of the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapters 20 through 24. And then we went back to the Hebrew Scriptures, back to the Tanakh, the Old Testament as we call it, and picked up in First and Second Samuel. We read the first 14 chapters of the book of First Samuel. So we've got a little bit of a mix tonight that we can talk about. <clears throat> Last week... <clears throat> We had uh, a, a movie producer on with us, who Tim um, Mahoney. Mahoney, thank you very much. I couldn't Can you hear remember me that okay, last. Soapy? Am I on? Can you see? Sure, I hear you just fine, right. and you're showing up on the. Thing. Okay, they're good. It's Tim Mahoney. Tim Mahoney came and, on. A movie and his producer. movie is called The Moses Controversy. It's only on one more night this coming Tuesday. Okay, this coming Tuesday evening, oh. one more night here in San Antonio. It's Do you called, know what the controversy is? By what's the way? it called? By the way, what's the first words? Um, uh, Pat. 
patterns of evidence. Patterns of evidence. The Moses, the Moses controversy. controversy. It has to do with the authorship of the uh, Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Yes. Uh, the Bible uh, and, and attributes these to is, Moses. Uh, all the secular colleges, <laughs> Yale, U of M, Harvard, and many, most of them are teaching that Moses did not really write the Bible. It's written much later by different people. However, they signed Moses' name. In my book, that's a forgery. It's like me signing your checks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I understand. Uh, so I know you do. But what's interesting is they're saying their position is, and now I'm going to tell you the zinger, easily 75 to 80% from what's reported in the I hear of Christian seminaries producing preachers are teaching Moses didn't write it. And I'm thinking, where does this controversy come from? But you go and you talk to the average person, the average Christian, or the average Jew, they'll say, what controversy? And Moses wrote it, didn't he? And uh, most of them say they didn't even know there was a controversy. Mm-hmm. You know, there are three groups of people, right? Mm, okay, I'll bite. Sure. Uh, <laughs> those that make something happen. Those that know something happened, and then those that don't even know have, anything have a clue what's happening. You guys <laughs> step on my line. <laughs> I guess I it. thought you said you didn't know. I didn't know. I was just brilliant enough to guess it. Uh, no, you sort of. <laughs> All right, but anyway, it's sort of like when uh, this guy gets a letter from the IRS and he says, uh, "The letter says you better come down here. We see a lot, a lot of money going into your account and coming out. You can bring your accountant with her if you like." So he gets his accountant. I go down to the IRS. Us. The agent says, we don't understand. We're looking at your account, and you got a lot of money going in and coming out. And the guy says, well, I gamble a lot. And he says, you gamble a lot? On what? And he said to the IRS guy, well, on anything, actually. Like, for example, I'll bet you 5000 <clears throat> that I can bite my eyeball. And the IRS guy says... You can't do that. He says, then take the bet. So that he bets with the IRS guy for 5000 So he pulls out his glass eye, and he bites it. <laughs> and then he puts it back in. And the IRS guy says, oh, my goodness, I owe you 5000 The guy says, hey, look, I'll give you a chance to get even. I'll bet you 7500 that I can bite my other eyeball. And the IRS guy thinks, well, I didn't see him with a cane or a seeing eye dog. So that eyeball's got to be real. So the IRS guy says, okay, okay. I'll bet you seventy five hundred. So the guy pulls out his false teeth and bites his other eyeball <laughs> with his false teeth. Yeah. So, but so it's all how you perceive things. Oh, yeah, exactly. And if I'm telling you that a guy, because the, the basic theory in this controversy is, mm-hmm. is that it was written by the guy they pin the blame on is Ezra. Mm-hmm. And they have, if they had one document, just one, I'd say, well, you know, you got something here. But they have absolutely no evidence. But what troubles me is if I write your name on your check and cash it, to me, that's a forgery. And if Moses is saying, I wrote this, God told me, I wrote it. But it's not true. And Ezra wrote it, as they're perpetuating, and that's the controversy. Then that means that's a forgery. So why should I believe anything in it if it's a forgery? And most especially, it's complicated even further by the fact that, as you say, 
Moses says very clearly, God told me to write this down, and I did, and so on. Now, most of this controversy, though, it's, it, it, for those of you who may not know, we don't want to spend too much time on it tonight, but there, it, it's this, what is called the documentary theory, uh, the documentary hypothesis, hypothesis that uh, and this fellow named Wellhausen, what, a hundred and so was, uh, years no, ago? he died in 1819, actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. A hundred years ago. Oh, right. Two hundred years yeah. ago. Uh, he was the, there was actually called the Graft-Wellhausen hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was actually the basis of the work that Hitler started making his religion on. Because whether we know it or not, his religion of Arianism, being an Arian, was uh, based on Wellhausen's theory. And it actually came up, uh, actually a couple of people had written something on in the 16th century. They doubted the authorship. Uh-huh. Well, Hitler was actually had commissioned uh, the rewriting of the Bible, mm-hmm. and he was removing the Jews and inserting the Aryans. Mm-hmm. Interesting, isn't mm-hmm. it? And uh, you can actually Google this and find out that it was actually a religious thing. But the documentary hypothesis was uh, hypothesized by uh, this fellow Wellhausen. Well, it was yes, picked uh, up from there, and it was based on this idea that there are different names of God through the that history. is one of the and prospects, so they yes, uh, they. Took that idea, uh, J-E-P-D, the Jehovah Elohim, uh, the priestly name, and uh, the Deuteronomic name or something. Uh-huh. And so they hypothesized that because of these different names given to God that this had to be written uh, later on by someone. And then, of course, further on uh, came the idea that well, there was no writing at that time. There was no uh, alphabet. So it would have been impossible for Moses to have written uh, the Bible, and yet uh, that's one of the things that you're going to see in this movie that we want you, really, if you enjoy and want to know uh, uh, behind these things, the archaeology, the, the linguistic, and uh, um, the, the, the language uh, controversy, how that developed, and so on, you will want to go see this, the, um, the uh, Moses controversy. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, we've had a chance to preview it ourselves and see it. Uh, it is well, well documented in terms of it shows even handedly exactly lays out what the, what the crisis or what the uh, hypothesis is about and what the problems that people might have with the mosaic um, uh, authorship of the of the Tanakh uh, of the uh, I'm sorry, of the Torah. And then, of course, it, it lays out very, very clearly how indeed it is very possible for Moses to have written. There did have a language that it did exist, and uh, frankly, what the the JEPD hypothesis, the the uh, documentary hypothesis, is just way behind time. They have not stayed up with the recent discoveries and and uh, the the research has been done about the languages and about the development of language and alphabet and so on. Uh, it is very very clear that Moses indeed could have and most probably did write the uh, first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. You'll really, really enjoy it, folks. It's a great uh, journey. It's very interesting, extremely well documented. The, 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 um, the, the vision, the, the, the visual uh, and the video of the film is just breathtaking. They take you right there to the promised land. They uh, lay out and clearly that you see some archaeological discoveries and writings and so on that, that upon which they base the case for the Mosaic uh, authorship of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. So I hope you'll go and see 
it. Tuesday night is the last showing here in our city. Uh, I, I, I'll have to leave it to you to look up to uh, uh, Google, perhaps, uh, the movies, the theaters here in the city and find out where it is being shown. But it's called uh, the, uh, uh, what is it called, that first part? The um, Pattern of Evidence. The Pattern of Evidence, the Moses Controversy on Tuesday evening. Uh, so please um, take that opportunity to go see this brilliant film. It's very, very well done. A documentary that you will enjoy and will en- enhance and uh, greatly uh, build your faith and, of course, your understanding of the Scriptures, what they're all about and so on. Well, tonight, let's, let's spend a little time in the Gospel of Luke. Jacob, last week we didn't um, f- uh, Fathom? Fathom, yes. What is Fathom? Is that a theater? It's a, they do different uh, theatrical presentations Okay. that are, that are kind of like, uh, what do you call it, uh, not in-house, but yeah, in, in, I guess in, in-house, uh, closed circuit. It plays a different theme. I see. And Fathom is here. Well, it's not not just here. It's across. It's across the country. Oh, I see. I see. They show old movies. They show opera. Uh huh. Documentaries. I was thinking Fathom that. might be the name of a theater here in the city, but no, but if, no you're if, talking if about the. If they look up Fathom when they're looking up the movie, okay, that'll help them find. It. That'll help you find it. Find the movie, the Moses controversy. Put the word Fathom, and John says that'll help you find it and where it's being, um, uh, where it's being. Um, shown here in the San Antonio area. Tuesday evenings, our last opportunity, so make sure you get out to see that if you, if you th- think you might enjoy that kind of documentary. Let's spend a little time on the book of Luke tonight. All right, Jacob? Well, we- if, if you insist on doing biblical things, yes. <laughs> uh, let's do that. Let's get back to our roots here, what we do. And um, <clears throat> the Gospel of Luke, as we've mentioned before, was it's the longest of the four Gospels. It is written by Dr. Luke. Uh, a, a Greek uh, physician uh, of that era who also was a, a premier historian. He wrote, uh, actually, he wrote most of the New Testament because he wrote the books of Luke, which is the longest of the four Gospels, and he wrote the he, the book of the Acts uh, that comes as, as a, a history of uh, the beginnings of the early Christian church, the assemblies, the gatherings, as believers began to gather and identify as followers of the way, as followers of Jesus the Messiah. And uh, he wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles, it's called, uh, although I like to call it more the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but that's that's, uh, just a personal choice. So Luke is the author, uh, very, very... uh, Good historian. He put dates and times and places and uh, people and 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 he covered w- with details around his stories, and so that we can actually uh, we can actually go through them and we, they are easy to confirm uh, with all of that background it's given. We can place so much of the time and the place, and it fits right into the um, all the details of that era in which uh, that first century in which about which Doctor. Luke uh, wrote. So um, I don't know what we could uh, ask about the Gospel of Luke, Jacob, that might be interesting. Uh, these last chapters cover somewhat mainly the uh, the last uh, days, the last weeks of Jesus' life, as particularly that last, uh, the what we call the week of the Passion of the Christ. He came back from northern, uh, uh, northern Israel, where his ministry had been kind of headquartered or centered in the northern part.
part of Israel, which was expected and had been predicted of the work of the Messiah. He comes back for this final visit. He begins to tell his disciples, I'm going to go. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be convicted and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I will rise from the dead. So he begins to tell his disciples this. Now, in my view, personally, how did Jesus know these things? All right. How did he know that he was going to go down and this was going to happen to him. In the first place, he lived the moment. He knew the times that he was living in. He knew the pressures. He knew the dangers that he was in. Uh, he knew that, that that he was being viewed in this way. But on the other hand, too, when we talk about being crucified and all, there was this thing of the biblical prophecies. He could read uh, Psalm 22. He could read Isaiah 53. He could read other portions of Scripture that talk about the Messiah, not only being a you know, conquering king and, and, and one who all the predictions and prophecies about the Messiah in the uh, Tanakh, the Old Testament, among those was this description of a suffering servant, of one who would come, who would be killed, who would uh, and who would rise from the dead. And so he, I, I believe, as a man, the perfect man of faith, he also looked at those. But besides knowing about him, uh, knowing his own story, knowing the prediction that he went down into Egypt, that he uh, was born in Bethlehem, that his parents on both sides were descendants of, of King David. All of these predictions about the Messiah, the angels that appeared at his birth, the star that appeared over Bethlehem, all of these things were predicted and happened. And so I think by this time, Jesus knows his identity. He knows who he is. And he has spent enough times in the scriptures and, and seeing the era, the times in which he lived. And, and I believe personally that it was a step of faith that he knew, not because he was a son of God and he remembered all these things but but because he was a man of faith and he walked out the perfect walk of faith and trust and obedience to the Father as a man and he could see clearly that this was this was what was in store for him uh, that's my belief that, 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 that Jesus as a man of faith that was the understanding of how and I think it's Paul's if you read Philippians chapter 2 he talks about Jesus he didn't ever cease being God but he humbled himself and he, he, he left off the free exercise of his divine prerogatives as God. Uh, and he didn't do anything of his own divine per, uh, uh, will, his own uh, power, his own uh, initiation. He only did what the Father showed him and, and led him and guided him and empowered him to do. Uh, Jesus says that basically on many different occasions. But if you look at John chapter 5, verse 19, John five thirty-one, you'll see that Jesus said, I do nothing except what the Father shows me and tells me and empowers me to do. And so um, Jesus knows this. He goes down intentionally. He knows he's going to his death. Uh, he goes and spends that last week. And this time he doesn't try to avoid uh, the conflict. In fact, he more or less invites it. He engages with the religious leaders of the time that were very critical of him and, and very wanting to remove him because of the danger he uh, uh, that he uh, brought upon himself and upon, of course, the nation in that sense from the Romans. So uh, anyway, that's the kind of the long picture. With these last days, we see Jesus going down 
this comes to pass. He he has the the Passover meal. He commemorates that with the Jews. Now the Passover figures kind of prominently in the life of Jesus. Jacob, I've I've noticed that as we've looked at all these different events in his life, you often remind us that yeah, we can know when this was because this was had to do with the Passover or these different holidays uh, in the life of Jesus. So. his last days, his the, what the Passion of the Christ takes place that week, it's all around Passover uh, in his life, in his existence. Uh, so uh, he goes down, he spends that Passover with his disciples. And there was something about the Passover that year. Was it that there was a dual Passover? Was there, uh, was there some reason well, Thursday, Friday, uh, that sort of thing? Was there two separate ones? Well, whenever there's a Sabbath... It is a Passover. Mm-hmm. That year, as I understand it, um, there would have been the Sabbath three days before Saturday, mm-hmm. the Sabbath. So uh, so that would have been like Thursday. That would have been uh, late Thursday afternoon. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh huh. So now I think, because uh, we all know that according to Luke, that when uh, Jesus was born, he was in the field, or there were shepherds in the field, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Shepherds in the field is a colloquialism. Uh, the shepherds are the priests. I've heard this, because they kept the lambs that were being prepared for Passover. Is that the right, right? That's idea? correct. And we actually know, in fact, a friend of yours, <clears throat> and I discussed this on the phone one time, I'd be your buddy Murph. Okay, good old Murph. Uh, and uh, and I said, Murph, the lambs are always born at the end of March or early April, no matter where. So he checked with one of his friends, that's a raise of sheep. And he mm-hmm. came back and said, that's what they told me. I said, so now we know that it was at the end of March, beginning of April, somewhere in there. Well, that's when Passover occurs. Mm-hmm. That's why he had been born at that time of year. That's why it says the shepherds were in the field. Well, they're not in the field in the middle of winter because it's cold. So, now, historically, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were all born in the month that Passover occurs. Mm -hmm. Moses was born and died on the same day. David was born and died on the same day. And and I mentioned Moses, of course. So that pattern, Mm -hmm. may I say pattern of evidence, Mm -hmm. indicates that Jesus, too, would have kept the pattern. Mm -hmm. That's why those patterns are there, so we can see the fulfillment. So I will suggest that he was born at Passover exactly when lambs are born. And in this area around Bethlehem, is where the priests kept their flocks. They couldn't own land. They could own a home inside of what they called a walled city, like a, a gated community, you might uh-huh. say. But, and, and they could have a, a pasture for their flocks, and they would keep their flocks in, the, in that pasture. That mm-hmm. pasture happened to be by Bethlehem. So, see, the story starts fitting together. So, mm-hmm. Jesus would be born at the time the other lambs were born. Mm-hmm. In the spring there. Uh-huh. So... This isn't, I've heard this before, and I've and I, and I thought, and in fact, it showed up when we also, when we talked about Jesus going to his bar mitzvah when he completed his 12th year, his 12th birthday. Right. He Remember, he went back and he was he was visiting with the uh, religious leaders and so on at the temple, and his, he got lost. His mom and dad had to come back and find him. And that occurred at Passover as well. And so that would have been his bar mitzvah, his birthday. Well, so we call of his bar mitzvah year. today. Uh-huh. And certainly, it's so simple to figure out. Out. It says, I believe in the book of Luke, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh-huh. which 
I've noticed that you're willing to do. <laughs> um, the uh, With hesitation, of uh, course. Uh, don't hesitate. Go ahead and jump right on me, both feet. <laughs> At any rate, but it says that they went to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Well, and then it says he, and of course, remember when they left, they had to go back and find him because then he said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Uh And it says he was in the temple asking questions and teaching also. Well, in a bar. It was his 12th, I think we do learn that it was his uh, end of his 12th year or 12th birthday. In the old King James, it says when he was fully 12, which Uh means last couple days of his his birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And when does a today called Bar Mitzvah, when does that take place? The last days of your 12th year. Well, on your 13th birthday. Mm -hmm. or the first Sabbath thereafter. Mm -hmm. So he's there, and it's a Passover. Now, here's the interesting thing that I want to point out. Uh, So if you're going to jump on me, wait till I finish this sentence. Okay. Um, When the uh, Pat, like my grandson, will have his bar mitzvah this year. Hello, Tavin. Yeah, that's right. And hello, Will, my grandson. I told Will I'd say good evening and hi to him today. Is he so. listening? I think he is. Hi, Will. Good to talk to you. Oh, look at there. He's calling in Keep right now. Keep listening. At <laughs> uh, any rate, um, <laughs> John went for the phone when I said he's calling. And John, I was panicked. Joking. He woke up. He woke up and he went for the phone. He thought oh, when no. I said he's calling in, he thought I meant it. At any rate, John, you can go how, dare, how dare you wake John up from a nice deep sleep? But anyway, so now what's really unique about this? At ever the Bible's divided into basically fifty two portions. Mm-hmm. So whenever your bar mitzvah or for a girl bat mitzvah occurs, you do that portion that occurs on your birthday, mm-hmm. and you read it to the congregation and you teach them something about it from your perspective. Mm-hmm. So if this was Passover, and we know it was because it says in the book of Luke it was, and it's a, he's fully twelve. He went to Jerusalem at twelve. He left at thirteen. Aha! Today it's what we call bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. So, what would he have been teaching these people when he read it? He would have been teaching Soapy. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Passover. Oh, oh, I see. I'll say, I, I thought so you meant what biblical passage. No, that would be his portion. It's oh, about I see. Passover. Oh, so of course. All, the whole Bible is divided into 52 from the book sections. Of, from the book of Exodus, I guess. That's yeah. right. So mm-hmm. he'd be teaching about Passover. Mm-hmm. Now, the story for me starts really fitting together because he's there teaching about Passover. Aha. Now, we know he was, that was his birthday because when does he do Passover? It's the 13th anniversary of the day he was was born. Mm-hmm. It's so simple to figure out. And then when we compare the lambs, we know the lambs are only born at one time of the year, and that's during the time of Passover. Isn't that fascinating? It all fits together. So this is the this is the kind of thing I, I was saying about Dr. Luke. He gives enough details in terms of uh, the things that are happening that it's easy pretty much to piece together the time and the place and the dates of these different events. It, it really is very fascinating. So you got, well, if you want to talk about something about Luke, look yeah. at your question number On Resurrection Day, I and another disciple were on the road when Jesus met us. They were walking on the road there. You remember this this couple, I and another disciple. Who am I and where were we going? That's found in Luke chapter 24, verse 13 and following. Well, when we come a, back? Let, let, we'll answer when we come back. So, folks, you get a chance to look that up if you'd like. Yeah, that's, that's good. 
Uh, Luke chapter 24, who was this disciple and his friend that were on the road when Jesus met them and gave them an incredible, remarkable Bible lesson. You can call in if you'd like. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. And if you have a cha- an answer to that question, who was this on the road and, and where were they going? The road to where? All right, you can join us. We'll be right back. Don't you go away. We won't be long. We'll be right back. Dr. Stan Shelton, with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway, has taken care of the Dollar family, that's Suzanne and me plus our three children, for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. Even when it feels like we have nothing else, God will never fail or abandon us. Hi, and welcome to today's encouragement from Our Daily Bread. Our reading is titled Joy in Hard Places, and it was written by Kirsten Holmberg. Whenever she was unable to take my phone call, my friend's voicemail recording invited me to leave her a message. The recording cheerfully concluded, make it a great day. As I reflected on her words, I realized that it's not within our power to make every day great. Some circumstances truly are devastating. But a closer look might reveal something redeeming and beautiful in my day, whether things are going well or poorly. Habakkuk wasn't experiencing easy circumstances. As a prophet, God had shown him coming days when none of the crops or livestock on which God's people depended would be fruitful. It would take more than mere optimism to endure the coming hardships. As a people group, Israel would be in extreme poverty. Habakkuk experienced heart-pounding, lip-quivering, leg-trembling fear. Yet despite that, Habakkuk said he would rejoice in the Lord and be joyful. He proclaimed his hope in the God who provides the strength to walk in difficult places. Sometimes we go through seasons of deep pain and hardship. But no matter what we've lost or wanted but never had, we can, like Habakkuk, rejoice in our relationship with a loving God. Even when it feels like we have nothing else, He will never fail or abandon us. He, the one who provides for those who grieve, is our ultimate reason for joy. Today's encouragement was provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. If you're looking for a church to call home, start your search with the church directory at am630theword.com. There you'll find hundreds of churches near you. Churches like Agape Christian Church, Trinity Baptist, River City Community Church, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Freedom Fellowship, Riverview Cavalry Chapel, His Life Fellowship, Alamo City Bible Church, and Calvary Chapel Solid Rock. Or make sure your home church is listed so others can find you. It's the church directory at am630theword.com. Hey, this is Bob Olszewski. Thanks for listening to Plugged In. B.B. Rex's latest pop single, Last Hurrah, focuses on the singer's bad habits, even as she vows to get clean. Rexa declares her intent to leave all her baggage in the backseat, that is, once she's finished indulging one more time. This is my last hurrah. 
from bad decisions is, of course, a good thing. But last hurrah and its video tends to suggest all too often that it's okay to give in. It's okay to indulge. And the bad habits B.B. Rex and her friends cave into here aren't the kinds of things you likely want your kids watching and imitating. For a full review, visit PluggedIn.com slash radio. I'm Bob Olaszewski for Focus on the Families Plugged In. Find out more about your favorite programs and the ministries on AM630 The Word by going to the program guide at am630theword.com. There, you'll get connected to the ministry website, email, and phone number. Plus, find out when your favorite show airs on the program guide at am630theword.com. It only takes a spark to get a fire going and soon all the around will warm up to its glowing that's how it is with God's love once you've experienced it you spread his love to everyone you want to pass it on Listening to the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Let's begin to sing the flowers start their blooming. That's an old song, folks. That's from way back in the '60s, I think. Back in the last millennium, uh, a thousand years ago. Oh, summer camp for John. That's when he remembers that from a kid. Uh, pass it on. It's called Pass It On. Oh, pass it over. That was very popular back in that era. It really was. Well, we're back. This is the Bible Live. My name is I'm Soapy. Bach. And <laughs> I'll be Bach. You be Beethoven. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get back to our discussion right, of so the we Bible Live. You can give us a call if you'd like. 210-340-9585. And we've already thrown out a question about yes, um, we have. This, this journey. We, we read about in Luke chapter 24. It says that I and another disciple were on the road. We were traveling, uh, walking, I imagine, when Jesus met us and gave us a very thorough, very important Bible lesson uh, from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Who am I, it says, and where were we going? Now, we have a caller on the line. Should we give Lee a first I shot I would at think, that? let's say we have several callers, but let's take Lee. Let's, Okay. Where are you taking me? I'm, <laughs> where are we taking you? We're taking you on a, a magic carpet ride, Lee. Good to hear from you, my friend. Um, Same here. Okay. What, what? Uh, they were on the road to Emmaus. Okay. And in verse 18, we find that Cleopas was one of them. And just reading through that passage, I suspect the other one was Peter, although there is no other name given that I can see in that passage. Some people uh, conjecture that it might have been actually his wife, but I, I don't know. Uh, uh, on what do you base the idea that it might have been Peter, just because, I don't know? Well, um, th- in verse 12, it says, Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes and, and laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself of that which was come to pass. And then the next verse we drop into, and behold, two of them went uh-huh. the same day. 
just the idea that he, you know, knowing how impetuous Peter was, that he, oh man, let's take a walk, uh, Cleopas, let's go, you know, yeah. that would be my thought on, on that. Yeah, uh, Peter was impetuous, he did uh, tend to, uh, well, in the first place, he entered the room mouth first, so he's always quick to say something, <laughs> but also he was, yeah, like you say, he was quick to act, once he, once he kind of got on board, he, he was quick to act, even if he was wrong, at least he didn't hesitate. Well, that, that's an interesting thing. I don't know where they get the idea that it might possibly have been his wife. Uh, I, um, I, I'm, I'm sure I read it at one time why they thought that might have been true. But uh, anyway, he and another disciple were on the road to Emmaus. Now, uh, I have found, uh, Jacob says they've never found anything that any mention or history of a town called Emmaus. I have found some information that there was somewhere they conjecture uh, without absolute certainty, but that they uh, it may have been about 15 mile, miles west of Jerusalem. That would have put it on the other side of Bethlehem, wouldn't it? Because Bethlehem wasn't far. Uh, yeah, it could have. 12 miles If there was such a place. But there is no recording that I can find of where the secular Christian or Jewish uh-huh. scholars can identify such a place. That doesn't mean that there wasn't some place Maybe it had a stop and go. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's what Emmaus means, is stop uh, and go. Actually. You know, like that. Well, may I make a different it was, suggestion? It was a local speed trap. I'm sure you couldn't uh, walk over two miles per hour or you get a ticket. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think you have a theory, though, about uh, or an there? idea about Emmaus. Lee there? Yeah, I hear you personally. Lee, no, Lee, Lee are still you there. there? I'm here. Leave us. Okay. He's there. Uh, here. A suggestion. Let's say that we can't identify a place called Emmaus. All right. But let's say it's from the Hebrew, but it's said Emmaus in, let's say, Greek. Uh, if it was the same word, but in Hebrew, ending with a different uh, suffix, it'd be emunah. And that's the word for faith. So what if I suggested to you these two people... We're on the road to faith. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, that's not what I, I look at the Hebrew and the Greek on that. But anyway, okay, Jacob, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but he gave them a Bible lesson that really would have taken them uh, straight to faith, I assume. I mean, uh, they didn't recognize it. This is very interesting because, uh, of course, if they were disciples, they would have recognized Jesus normally, but they didn't recognize him, which might say something about his resurrected body. It might. That he was able to maybe uh, change his appearance or something like that, but they didn't recognize him. And he gave them a Bible lesson from, it says, the book. Very interesting in light of our talk about Moses, he gave them, he explained them the Hebrew scriptures from what Moses to the prophets? Doesn't it say that in the text? It says that he explained to them from Moses to the prophets about himself. So, so if, he gave credit to Moses so for being it, the writer. If he's explaining it, verse twenty-seven, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Mm-hmm. Go so ahead. Let's say that he did that. Then what I always like to ask people. What was he explaining? Was he picking isolated tidbit verses? Is that no, he about probably this? About that? Uh, he probably expounded all the prophecies that he fulfilled. Christ fulfilled all the prophecies from the Old Testament. 
Look here, it says the Messiah would do this, would do this, would do this, would do this. Actually, it doesn't ever say the Messiah will do that. Actually, we understand that it says the Messiah will do that, but it doesn't Mm -hmm, say expressly mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. the Messiah shall do this. Mm -hmm, It'd be so easy if it did that. What we do is... Well, there are some occasions of that, right? Well... But not everyone. Slowly riding a donkey, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what we got is, um, but we have these stories, and these stories from the Hebrew establish an attribute of, shall we call him the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So if we establish an attribute, then when the guy shows up and says, hey, I'm the Messiah, we have all these understandings from the story. So I would go one step deeper than what Lee suggests about just the prophecies, I would say the stories of the Torah themselves create attributes that the Messiah must fulfill. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and then go ahead, explain further what you think you might have presented to him from, the, from well, Moses for example, to the prophets. Well, we know one example is what does Moses do? He is, in a sense, a Messiah, not the mm-hmm, Messiah. Mm-hmm. But what did he do? He rescued people from sin or Egypt, because mm-hmm. sin, uh, Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, which is the boundaries of sin, actually. Mm-hmm. So we know they took people out of sin. We have the story of Noah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what attribute do we get out of that? Noah knew that people was going to drown. Mm-hmm. And so what he did is... And he, he warned them. And he warned them, but he did something else. He had children, and he taught them right from wrong. He taught them whatever God laws were at that time. So, we have that attribute, too. And he rescued a certain group of people well, from, yes, the, yes. from the judgment he, he of God. He did save them. Mm-hmm. Oh, him and his family. Mm-hmm. But, Guys, there's a clue in verse 25, if you let me share. Mm-hmm. Then he said unto them, O fool, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So, to me, that again means that he reiterated, okay, Genesis 3.15 and so forth, all of the prophecies that spoke of his coming. And the redemptive plan of God, which is, of course, right. has as its focal point, the, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever it was, I would love to have been, heard that Bible study. I, I suspect that Jesus had a handle on the scriptures. He understood them. He knew them. Uh, he, well, let he me could plug in the opposite side, uh, the companion thought. Mm-hmm. If he explained it, mm-hmm. then the people he's explaining it to must have the ability to understand it. So they had to be familiar with what we're calling the Old Testament, or mm-hmm. they would have made gobbledygook mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So he so probably, most probably, it was uh, a Jewish. No, is a disciples. So I would uh, say from the from the group of the disciples. Yeah. By the way, do you know what next Thursday is, Lee? Next Thursday, Monday, Thursday. Uh, Thursday. I don't know about that. It might be Monday, Thursday for all I know. Uh, the, I don't know what that is. It, it's in the, uh, in the have to do with the time of Lent? Or, no. Or, no, or is no. that just a New Orleans thing? I don't know anything about Lent. What is that Monday, Monday Thursday about? Next Thursday is the book of Esther. It's Purim. The Purim, the day of Purim, yeah. And, oh, Purim, yes, okay, there you go, yeah. There I go, yeah, Thanks. That's right near the book that's named by, 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 for my wife, Ruth. 
All right. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, if she's not around, I'm ruthless, so be careful. Yeah. Well, and you're absolutely right. It's the Book of Esther. She has a civilizing effect on you, and when uh, she's not around, you're ruthless. By oh, the way, that's this good. is interesting. Uh, the Book of Esther, with an H in front of pronounced in, from Hebrew, Hester, you might mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. is the word for hidden. Now, what's hidden? In the Jewish version of Esther, the Book of Esther, mm-hmm. uh, it there, what's hidden is God's name. It's not said anywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you pick up a Catholic Bible, you'll see a lot of the Catholic Bibles will have two versions. The Jewish version, that does not mention the name of God. And then following right after that, they've got the Greek version that has God all over in it. Mm-hmm. Because the only thing I can think is the, Jew, the Greeks must have thought, those silly Jews, they left out God's name. <laughs> <laughs> and so they rewrote it. So you can actually read both. Uh-huh. And it's, it's interesting to see how the Greeks did Sure, it. sure. It's in- interesting to read it and realize that in this incredible story. We'll get to it, folks. Don't get impatient. We'll get to the book of Ruth, and we'll uh, talk yes, about it. Yes, we will. In fact, yeah. Lee, what? Yes, sir. we're on the book of Samuel tonight. I know we're going to have to jump back to Luke in just a second, but since we're talking about Esther, um, what ha- what takes place, if you know, I'm, this is an unfair question, perhaps, but there's something that takes place in... Uh, Chapter 15 of First Samuel mm-hmm. that relates directly to the book of Esther. Wow. Well, oh, that's going to be a tough one. Uh, that's uh, an unfair question. That's very tough. What is it? First Samuel 15? It is. It is. And it's it's something related Samuel, to the book of Esther. Samuel disobeys God and fails to do something. That has long, long-term consequences. <laughs> um, oh, to kill, uh, kill people, kill the Philistines. Oh yeah, Agag. Agag, Agag, yeah. Agag, Agag, Agag. Agag, the Malachites, yeah. and he left right. him alive. And, and that, and his, you go back and look at Haman. Haman is yes. a descendant, not just of the Amalekites, but a direct Haman is a direct descendant of Agog. Agog. How Agog. about that? And what gets more fascinating? If Samuel is, had obeyed him, then there you go. Book Ruth. of Esther would have never taken place. <laughs> oh, but now, that. what happens also is Mordecai is a direct descendant of. Yes, you guessed it, Saul. Is that right? Yes. So they've met again, and Mordecai gets the opportunity to correct in his lineage what Saul failed to do. Well, I'll be. Isn't that interesting? That is fascinating. I know, but that, the only reason I bring that up is because in First Samuel chapter 15, it, Saul, uh, Samuel says, Saul, you didn't do what God told you to do. And so Samuel kills him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chops them up. Yeah, well, that's one principle we see throughout the scriptures. And Lee, I think you'd agree that there is there. It all ties together. It's 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 a single tale of God's redemptive plan and one thing. it's not just isolated things. It's, it's a, there's a story of redemption throughout the scriptures, and one thing does connect to the other. You know, uh, quite often it really is that way. Yeah, well, well, to Lee, yeah. you called in. You answered our question. Maybe there's something you would like to add about the Gospel of Luke. Uh, anything? Any thoughts? I know you and Ruth are, are very strong biblical teachers and scholars. I'd love, I'd love to hear what is kind of maybe your favorite aspect of the of the Gospels, the message of Jesus, of what he did. And so on. Any any thoughts on on Luke's gospel or? The- well, we have to remember that he was a physician, and so he's coming at at a unique perspective. But I would say my favorite passage is Luke two fifty two. Um, 
and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Mm. And that's an example for us, wisdom, yes. mentally, stature, physically, uh-huh. favor with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh-huh. and good relationships with man. with man. And we need to follow that. Relational beings. I love it. Thank you, brother. That'll preach. I'll, I'll steal it from you. No, I won't steal it, but I'll borrow it from you, all right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lee, good to hear from you, always. I'm here, and God bless you guys. Uh, enjoy hearing you. Oh, good, good to hear from you. Well, I do want to mention one other thing about the Gospel of Luke, if we can, that before we jump over into discussing the book of Samuel, uh, a favorite aspect for me in all the Gospels is I'm, I'm fascinated with the theme of the Holy Spirit. Because as you read about the Holy Spirit all through the Tanakh, all through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. But seemingly, as we look at the way the Holy Spirit operated uh, as part and the way the the Holy Spirit engaged with the people of God, God's people, is that he came, uh, we would, I guess it would be better said he came upon different individuals for a given time of service, for a particular, um, for a particular challenge or a particular project or a particular goal that God had in mind. Let's say a Saul is the first king of, of Israel. It says the Holy Spirit came upon him, came upon David, uh, and they would, and many times it said that God would come upon, like for example, Saul, and they would prophesy, they would preach, uh, and declare mes- an oracle of the message of God. Of course, God, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the prophets and moved and stirred them to preach and teach and say the things that they said, we're told. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit, uh, it looks like it, it was more situational and episodic the way the Holy Spirit engaged with his people. He came upon individuals, but this idea of a permanent indwelling and a permanent uh, companionship with every believer throughout their lives. That is totally and absolutely, a, that's a perspective that we only get in the New Testament. And Jesus is the one who brings it up. He talks about it in Luke chapter uh, 24, he um he, he's already told disciples, a num- the disciples a number of times that you're going to receive the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Uh, and, and he says, uh, and he even tells them a couple of times, guys, I got to get out of here. I got to go. I got to go to heaven. I got to go to the Father. Why? So the Father can send the comforter, the, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and escorts us. And so there was this, he, there was this, he gave this preview, this constant prediction that something exciting is is going to happen when I finish my work, when I finish my job and I descend to glory, I have to leave first, I finish my work, then the Holy Spirit is going to come and there's going to be a new engagement. There's going to be a new relationship between the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, this, this, uh, he is, he's a person. This is not an emotion. It's not a green vapor that fills the room. It's not a, a force, an impersonal force or influence. It's a person of the Holy Spirit of God who He's going to come now, and he's going to... the, the, the word is indwelt. It has its it has its root in the word, as I understand it, from the word tabernacle. He's going to tabernacle with the people of God. And that means he's going to come at the time of our spiritual birth as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, this new era, this new era of God's dealings with mankind after the coming of Messiah, after he has created his work. And Jacob, you were going to ask us, the question, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished yes. on the cross? And it may have to do 
do with this well, idea of he's finished his work? I must say. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, and I'm saying uh, somebody may disagree with me, but uh, when he says the words, it is finished, uh-huh. a lot of people say, well, his work is finished. I've heard that. Except for one thing. To me, from, you might say, an outsider's point of view, I mm-hmm. would say the resurrection and coming back and showing the fulfillment of what he mm-hmm. promised mm-hmm. is at least as important as him dying sure. on the cross. it is. So how could it be finished if he still had to do that? Okay. What, what was so, he so referring to? So my logic to? is this. Hmm. If I look very close, how do we finish the Passover ceremony, the meal, with the last drink? Uh, mm-hmm. So when he says it's finished, I'm thinking he's saying it's done. Passover is now complete. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I mean, it really, really does. So uh, the point there, maybe it is finished. Uh, I mean, that could be. But at the same time, still, uh-huh. in all, uh-huh. as a consequence of the redemptive work of the Messiah, his death, his resurrection. Well, let's say from your earlier comment, mm-hmm. let's say that was on at that that year and date. Mm-hmm. Let's say that occurred on sunset on Thursday. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then that week has two Sabbaths. It fits into Passover, that. And then on Saturday at twilight on sunset. And if you want to see when the lambs must be slaughtered, mm-hmm. it is in chapter 12 of Exodus. It is without a doubt, it's twilight. What is twilight? It's when the sun is setting but before the stars are seen. That period in there. Mm-hmm. So if we go from Thursday that year, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday at twilight is exactly three days, three nights. Mm-hmm. And there's your second Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So Passover is finished, but the resurrection will occur, which seems appropriate to a person like myself, uh, would occur mm-hmm. on the Sabbath at twilight. Yep. And then I do notice that it does say something about uh, certain ladies went to the tomb, right, on the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. What's the first day of the week according to the Bible? Sunday. 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 So the, now the stars are shown. That starts on Saturday it evening. It starts Saturday night, what we call Saturday night. So when the stars are shown, it's officially Sunday for the Jews and for God and for the Bible. But in America we have... They said they went when it was still dark. Yes. Uh, the, the, uh, so the, women the way were. I read that, the way I understand it is, at twilight is when, when he would resurrect. Now, mm-hmm. we know from the other Gospels, when they ran to the tomb. Uh, that would be the stars are out. So it's actually, biblically speaking, it's the start of the new day, the first day of the week, mm-hmm. Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so when they went, uh, we can able to determine that this evidently took place at that particular year on twilight at Thursday. So Early on the first day of the week, it says they went. That's right. Early the on the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. Sunday. So they're running there. And remember what one of the angels say? He's not here. He's already Resurrected. He's gone. There you go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, 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 very interesting. But in spite of all that, in spite, of back that. to the, uh, and, and I, I, I appreciate that. But I, I would, I'm talking about the theme of the Holy Spirit. Uh, is that uh, and, it, and it doesn't really have to go along with the idea of it is finished or any of these no, other things at all. But you asked. It's me. the whole point. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's fine. But the whole point is that the, the, the when when Jesus did complete his 
work as the Messiah, living out a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience to the Father as a man and being the, the last Adam and uh, winning our redemption and our, 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 the salvation by taking the penalty of our sin upon himself and so on. When that was completed and he ascended to the Father, it introduced a brand new era of God's dealings with his people. Now each of us, we're told in Scripture, each of us who trust in Jesus as Messiah and, and, and are born again. You see, Jesus in his role as the Messiah, yes, he was the eternal Son of God. Yes, he was was God in, incarnate. And yet, he didn't come to planet Earth. Do you Earth. know what the word incarnate really means? Taking on flesh. Oh, well, in the meat. Incarnate. So he's God yeah. in the meat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always thought that, because they have a college here in town called Incarnate Word, which uh-huh. means in the flesh, well, in the meat. Yeah. Well, it... What's the matter? I do speak something? some Spanish, and it's not it's in the not. meat. It, it, incarnate means in, in the flesh, okay, in in the flesh. The, as okay. a human being. Right, God, let's say it's in the human, flesh. Yeah. Uh, God taking on flesh, and he comes and works out and does his plan. Now, he never ceased being God, but Jesus didn't come to planet Earth to prove to everybody that he was God. That was not his intention. That was not his plan. That was not even his role, of the, the role of the Messiah. He came to Earth to carry out the role of a perfect human being, a perfect man of faith and trust and obedience and submission to the Father, he accomplished what Adam was unable to accomplish in, in the in the uh, in the book of Genesis. He now is the last Adam. He comes and he successfully uh, submits himself to the Father, even though he was God incarnate, God Himself, co-equal to the Father. Uh, but as Paul says in Philippians two, he didn't consider that something to be grasped and held onto, but he freely took upon himself uh, the role of a servant, and he walked under the yoke of faith and trust and submission to the Father as a perfect man of faith and. And then by that, he won the right to be the firstborn of the twiceborn. He won the right to be the tro- prototype of the, rede- of the new race of humanity, the race of the redeemed. And so Jesus is the, the last Adam, the firstborn of the twiceborn. And now because of his successful his success succeeding in that task uh, of that being that perfect man of faith and trust and obedience and submission now each of us who come to faith in Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness and cleansing of sin we also are identified with him in his victory in his resurrection and the new life that he has and so the holy spirit now we see the spirit of god now coming to uh, indwell or the t- to tabernacle with every believer from from the newborn believer, I was eight years old when I trusted in Christ. Others were older. But from the moment we trust in Christ, now God's Spirit comes to escort us to glory. I, I think that that theme of the Holy Spirit is so prominent and clear in, the, in this New Testament related to the role of Jesus. And uh, to me, it's one of the most exciting aspects even of the Gospel of Luke. You can look in chapter 24. And uh, they are told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was to come and fill them with power from on high. Well, our phone number is 210-340-9585. We'll continue to comment on the Gospel of Luke when we get back.
are back. Thank you for joining us, folks. Being a little patient with us. Got a little bit of a snafu in the uh, format there, but we got it straightened out. Thank you, John. And we've got a final segment now of the Bible Live uh, quiz show here on Sunday evenings. Chance for you to ask questions and uh, answer questions. And as we look at the uh, books of uh, Luke, we just finished up the final chapters, and now we're going to move uh, from Luke, uh, kind of giving some of our comments about uh, the Holy Spirit, about the road to Emmaus, and so on. Uh, a fascinating book. The Gospels are just tremendous. I always love it when we return, return to them. I feel like the, now we're getting the final end of the 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 total the the. the the heartbeat of the Bible. Something like to share, Sophie. The heartbeat, heartbeat of the Bible there. The uh, central figure, the character of the Bible as we understand it. That Redeemer, that Savior. The Old Testament looks forward. The New Testament looking back to, to his work and his life and his ministry. And, of course, look forward to the, now our part in the plan of God as his people, of, by the people of faith. Well, uh, anything else we want to talk about, Luke, and turn our attention to oh, the book go, of 1 Samuel? because we only got out Okay, we've got one more segment. Let's spend a little time talking about these uh, first 14 chapters. Uh, it starts out with telling the personal story of Samuel, right. how this kid... He's not a Levite. No. Right? No. And he's not a Levite and he's and, you know, he's just a child. And yet somehow he is going to become the transition person, the transition figure from the time of the judges. I guess he was a, a it lived at the same time Samson did, right? He probably knew uh, Samson. Or? Let's see here. No. No? Okay. I had always figured that he probably came in on the tail end of the jud- time of the judges, well, which have been Samson, I guess. Or the, the judges was uh, unfortunately due to corruption and whatever, uh-huh, uh-huh. and the violation of all six thirteen laws. We have Samuel coming up, right? Because uh-huh. judges is over, Joshua's over, judges is over. Uh-huh. Now Samuel, Eli is the Eli is the big guy. What does Eli mean, by the way? Eli, Eli, Eli. Uh, um, there was a book starring Denzel Washington, Ellie. a movie called The Book of Eli. The Book of Eli, yeah, but uh-huh. um, I'm trying to remember what it is. Okay, break it down, the word L. Uh-huh. What's that mean? God. God. If you put an I on it, it's my. My God, okay. My God, the book of my God. Okay, uh-huh. How about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you hadn't seen that movie by Denzel, with, with Denzel Washington, The Book of Eli, I, it's kind of interesting, is it? Yeah. With, with at least the spiritual message as a part of it. He memorizes the Bible. And by, yeah, he uh, memorizes the whole Bible. And by the way, uh, uh, did you realize that he was blind throughout the movie? Yes. I didn't. I didn't catch that he was blind because he did so many remarkable things. Right, yeah. that I, but then I, real, I went back and looked at it again and again and again, and I realized, oh, yeah, that's it. That's why anyway, the, we the can, book was yeah. that he memorized was in Braille. Okay. So we go to uh, what we, I was talking and trying to explain that we start the book with Samuel's story, he, how he comes, right. uh, how he even comes to be a person that we would pay attention to. Uh, uh, he's got a, a mother who prays and desires to have a child. Her name is Hannah, and and God uh, answers her prayer. Uh, there's a story attached to that. Eli sees her praying in the temple, and he thinks she's drunk because she's her lips are moving and all. And she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm devoted, and I, I want, I need a son. I want to ask from God, and, 
that if I could have a child, a son, I would dedicate him his entire life to God. And uh, and so Eli hears her prayer and says, God has answered your prayer. And so Samuel is born when it, and he is being weaned. I guess, was that his eighth year? About when he was eight years old that he's no, turned I think over? he's a little younger than that. Uh, even younger than that, he, she took him back to, to Eli, and Samuel became an assistant to the high right. priest, Eli. They have a famous song. They're at the that. tabernacle. They do? Yeah. yeah so you probably heard it. Uh, Here I am, Lord. Send Is me. it I, Lord? Uh-huh. I hear you calling in the night. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, based on that story that yeah. uh, when he was a little older, it's a God song. spoke to him and called out, you know, Samuel. It didn't say Samuel, but he spoke to him. And, Eli, and, and Samuel wasn't used to hearing from God. He didn't, he didn't. So he always went to Eli and said, what do you want? And, and Eli figured it out finally that God was trying to call him. And so next time you hear that voice, just say, here am I, Lord. Uh, your servant is listening. Speak for your servant is listening. And what a tremendous lesson. All of these would be great lessons for us. A lesson of prayer. Hannah's, Hannah's prayer of, of re- celebration and victory and thanksgiving to God is such a beautiful example. Example of a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Some say that uh, maybe Mary shaped her prayer to a, a little bit of an extent on on Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving as well. Just uh, some see see some similarities there. But so um, so we see that's how Samuel came into the picture. He's born in the city of Ramah or Rama, however you want to predict it, and he becomes this transition person between the time of the pre uh, time of the. Uh, 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 the judges and, and into the time of a king of a king yes. uh, the time and of have the kings. you and do you know what takes place in chapter 8 of 1st Samuel uh, chapter 8 of 1st do you first happen Sam- to have a bible with you I do have a bible with me uh, well I, isn't that when the people of Israel start asking Samuel hey we uh, uh, we want a king we, yeah. we want a king like other nations around and, us and what made them ask for a king why did they ask for a king? Well, well, I Eli, imagine it was because yeah. the judges had been a total failure. Well, the judges are gone now. And 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 they were in trouble. I don't know. They were being put upon by the Philistines and other well, enemies. Let's see what happens. In chapter 8, 1 Samuel, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. Uh, his firstborn son was named Joel, and his second name was Aviah. Now, who is this? The Eli? sons of Samuel. Samuel's sons. Yeah. Okay, okay, Isn't okay. That oh. Interesting. Oh, Whoa. yeah. Now I get it, huh? Yeah. So, what may so Samuel's a good guy, uh-huh. but he has kids that are not so good. A lot of the spiritual leaders of that yeah. era, Eli too, had yes, exactly bad he, parenting he boys that were are not you? very good. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. Actually- Would you contribute that to bad parenting, or just the kids were rotten apples? Uh, I don't know. You know? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Hard to say. Okay, yeah. Uh, but I will say, what's interesting, in chapter 8 of First Samuel, is where the people say, oh, we've had enough of this priest and judges business. Just give us a king like the other nations. And it's so interesting because the elders got together and they said to Samuel, now they're recognizing Samuel as the guy to give a king, right? And so he, he capitulates. He said, okay, we'll give you a king. And he, first he goes to God, and in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, God said to Samuel, Obey the people's request, whatever they say to you, 
For it is not you they have rejected, rather they have rejected it is me. Rejecting me, uh huh. So, and then it says, uh, just go ahead, they've abandoned me and they want to serve other gods. Now obey them, but warn them solemnly. Tell them what will happen when a king rules over them. Do you want me to read this, or do you want to read this? Start no, keep at, going, yeah, keep going. I, I'm looking. First Samuel chapter mm-hmm. eight, starting at verse uh, ten. Mm-hmm. Samuel reported all of God's message to the people who had requested a king to, uh, from the, him. Eleven. He said, "This is what will happen if a king reigns over you. He will take your sons." and place them before his chariot as horsemen to run before his chariot. Uh He will appoint officers of thousands and officers of fifties to plow for him and harvest for him, to manufacture his arms and his cavalry equipment. He will take your daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your choice fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will tithe your seed and your vineyards, and give it to his eunuchs and his servants. Uh He will take your servants, your maidservants, your fine young men, and your donkeys to do his work. He will tithe of his sheep to himself. He and you will be his slaves. And when you it cry sounds like out, he's describing the federal government. <laughs> I don't know. And when you cry out because the king you chose for yourself, God will not answer on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. They mm-hmm. said, no, no, we must have a king over us because we are determined to be like the other nations. Uh, we want our king to govern us, and he will go out before us and fight our wars. Samuel heard what the people said and repeated it to God. God said to him, Do what they say. Appoint a king over them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Okay, all of you go home. Mm -hmm. Now, what was that comment you made, something about the federal government? Well, he seems to be warning them here against the idea of a strong, powerful, central government, in this case a king, Mm -hmm. because he would do all of these things. He'll take your finances, he'll take your children, he'll Mm -hmm. take your, that he will remove, take from you uh, your liberties and your your freedoms, and that you would become, in, in a sense, dependent upon this king, this central mm-hmm. strong, and I know, I do know that this was used as a passage early on in our founding fathers of the country. That we, that's why they wanted a limited. If we were going to have a federal government, yes, we had states, all these different states. You, you could think of the states as the tribes of Israel, or in in that particular application, and strong states' rights. They wanted the the, the government to be close to the people and under the con, people's control because they realized the uh, the uh, the danger of a strong, powerful central government is that it would take control, that it would soon take your resources and take the people and and make the people dependent upon them. It, it's it's a classic passage on the uh, on the for the idea of a of a very limited central government and. It is. Here's Samuel's it, warning it them does. about it. It does. It certainly does. In fact, poor Eli. He was seems like he was a good guy, mm-hmm. but he had two boys, and they were not good guys. Hophni and Pincus, mm-hmm. and they went to battle with the ark. Eli had the same problem, right? And yeah. he and they the boys got killed, mm-hmm. but they were not good guys. Mm-hmm. But they got killed, and what happened in that battle? It's in chapter five and six. Yep. 
What happened? Do you know what happened? Uh, yes, you're right. The ark was the lost, ark right? The ark was captured. Captured by, yeah. And that's what kind of the first kind of exciting adventure of the book of Samuel is that oh. the ark is captured by the Philistines. Right. The ark of the covenant. I kind of hear the music from Rocky. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so what happens is they the Philistines capture it. Mm-hmm. And something very ha- interesting happens in chapter 6. They, of course, in 5 and 6, they place the ark next to their god, Dagon, which is a, basically a fish. And and he and he falls over, and his arms are broken off, only his mm-hmm. torso is left. Mm-hmm. But this is interesting. When they finally decide, we've got a problem here. We've got to get this god of the Jews out of our camp. Because <laughs> we've all got something called piles and rats in our village. Now... Did you notice that? It's piles or tumors something. Uh-huh. So that's, you know what that means? That's, com- that's coming out of their backs. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. And rats. Uh-huh. Now, they're overflowing with rats. Well, if there's no food to eat and the rats smell blood, what will they get? Yeah, I get it. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it's ugly, but it's there. Uh-huh. And so these rats are actually going after people to eat certain parts and so of they thing. say get rid of this ark of the covenant that that's causing this and so they 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 make the decision well, let's get it back to the jews right and give it right. back to israel and in chapter six uh say verse uh i guess it's verse four mm-hmm. it says we need to put some kind of a guilt offering with this Don't we send it back uh-huh. so they make five golden tumors or piles and five gold now, I rats want you to get this picture that's incredible they're taking the the tumors, uh, the piles that people mm-hmm. have, mm-hmm. and they're making a, what it looks like out of gold. That's odd. And they make five gold rats, too. And they put them on the ark. And then they want to send it back. So this is really, I mean, I've tried to picture that, and I'm thinking, who, mm-hmm. would, who would commission an artist to make those? Mm-hmm. At any rate, so they do, and then they... And uh, so they want to send them back. I, I suppose it was a sign of their desperation. They were eager to get rid of these uh, these judgments upon them, and so they were so, willing yeah. to almost do anything. Right. right? So, do would you tell tell the folks at home? Uh, the old clock on the wall says, but tell the tell the folks at home what happened and how did they send that ark back with those five. Golden piles and five golden rats. Well, I first want to say real quickly, you made me think of something. You made me think of your statement at the end of our program every week. You say, I always be the kind of person that you would like to have for a parent. And, and here we are talking about both Eli and Samuel. Yeah. They had parenting problems, evidently. I mean, their children were disobedient. God even tells... Which one of them? The God even I think it's Eli. He even tells them, you know, you you need to discipline your children. You need to train them. You know. Now remember the comparison, though. Samuel, mm-hmm. not a natural born child of Eli, is brought. Mm-hmm. He grows up to become the new priest, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. of the whole nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. The man. Mm-hmm. He actually the one that ends up anointing Saul. Right. So. The parenting skills are very interesting. Why did it take root with Samuel, but not his biological children? And the same thing with Eli. Why same did thing he, with, you know. well, I said Eli, but also with Samuel, I think you mean. I don't know. I, look, 
preacher's kid and missionary's kid, even in our time, they kind of have a get a bad rap about, you know, those preacher's kids are always kind of wild or whatever, you know, or missionary kids. And, and I guess I don't think it's true, you know, um, in every, obviously in every case, but uh, is there something that spiritual leaders tend to be? Is it possible? Don't tend to be yeah, good I'm just parents? throwing this out here. Is it possible that the dedication to their job is so time-consuming they have very little time to be a parent. That would be the excuse, but I don't buy that myself. Personally, just personally, okay. I, I think the up. priorities are, and God doesn't ask us to do that, to not mm-hmm. to okay. abandon our children or not be a good father. But anyway, anyway, it just reminded me of that statement when, you, when I read that these two great men of God, both of them faithful servants of the Lord, but they, um, they were unable to pass it on successfully to their children, that commitment, that devotion to the Lord. But anyway, okay, uh, let me sidetrack you too much there. We're into the story of sending the um, gold rats and everything back to, and they, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and, and they put the chest containing the gold rats and all in the cart as well, and they let the cows go wherever they want. And uh, what happened is these cows... Two cows were hitched to the cart. The newborn calves were shut up. In a, this is very interesting. Uh, if you're a farmer, they put these two cows onto this cart, and their newborn calves were shut up in a pen. And then the ark of the Lord and the chest containing the gold and the rats were placed on the cart. And sure enough, without veering off in any other direction, the cows went straight along the road toward Beth Shemesh, lowing, mooing as they went, and the Philistine rulers followed them. Now, Normally, a cow would not walk away from his calf, a newborn calf. Uh, her calf. Her calf. Thank you very much. I appreciate that correction. Um, so this was absolutely a miracle. I mean, it was an amazing thing that they were willing to walk away straight from their calves, and then they carried this back to the people of Israel. They were overjoyed to receive the cart and to receive the the Ark of the Covenant back to them. So uh, that being said, that little story being told, what did you uh, – mm-hmm. uh, well, did you have like a point with that that you were no, going to make? No, I just or? thought you might like to share that. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was very, very interesting. The Philistine – They went back to Beth Shemash. They got – the, yep. And you they know got what that the, means. Beth Shemesh is um, – House of Shemesh. That very, would be very good. Ha- a house, house of, of Shemesh. The summer camp that all little Jewish children go to is called Camp Shemesh, and it means sun. House of the sun. Oh, how about that? Huh, cool. Well, so the ark is moved to Kiriath Jerim. And uh, therefore, so the ark is recuperated. Samuel leads Israel to a victory, yeah. um, but. Sa- uh, in uh, over the Philistines, there I gather. Uh, now Israel requests the king. That's the big thing. Samuel is here to. He's going to be a transition person from the time of the judges to the time of the kings, from the time of the priests, the high priests and the priesthood, to the time of the prophets, those who were raised up to preach in you know the uh, the the era of the prophets that we will read about later on so as he well. Warned them, chapter eight. This is what a king's going to do. Mm-hmm. They said, that's okay. We want a king. Yep. And then by chapter 15. They get uh, Saul. They have anointed uh, Saul. And he does almost exactly what uh, he, they were warned about. Yep. 
He takes begins to take their kids and take their wealth and bring it into his under his power and so on. And then, Saul is just a fascinating individual, though. He, on, on the one hand, he, there's so much potential there. I mean, he is a, I mean, obviously he's a big, strong, tall, handsome guy, and probably that was. Yeah, I, I'm always sort of. I'm always sort of disappointed in American voters when we go to the ballot box. Uh, people vote, uh, you know, I, I don't know why people vote either according to party or according to personality. You know, he's good looks and something. And we should never vote on the basis of party or personality, only on the basis of policy. Well, what still, is it they say they will do? Yeah, you do know? you still have your Bible? I, I still have it sitting uh, right here in front what, of me. What, in chapter uh, 15, uh, verse. Uh, Let's see, 23. There is the most interesting verse that Samuel says to Saul. Uh-huh. Shaul, Saul. And uh, what does that say? It's verse 23. Uh, 15, you say 23? 15, 23. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and st- oh. stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. Now, look at that. Here's an interesting question. Sinning, the version I'm using is uh, disobedience, is like the sin of conjuring or augury. Mm -hmm. And uh, and defiance is like falsehood and idolatry. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many people think about sin as being forming an idol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, I like verse, uh, the, he starts off that little section. Samuel says to Saul, see, what happened was they had this battle, and Saul was told to do a, if I remember correctly, he was told to wait, he was he was to wait for Samuel to get there. Now, Samuel was delayed. I'm not getting the details here in chapter no, that's 15. Okay. You're close, yeah. Samuel is de- uh, delayed for some reason. So Saul goes ahead and he offers, he presents the offerings. So here he is stepping out of the role, beyond the role of the king, which he's not, and stepping into the role of priest, a prophet, the spiritual leader, and he offers a sacrifice, and they go ahead then into the battle. And later on, Samuel goes to find Saul, and he says, what's going on? And he was told to destroy all the sheep and all the, and so on. So... Uh, Saul then disobeys God and um, he disobeys and he goes ahead and makes these offerings. He takes on a role beyond his power. Is it what he's supposed to do? He doesn't wait on Samuel to come and, and make the offering and so on. And, and Samuel tells him an important thing. He says, look, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So there's a very, very important principle there about uh, the difference between just conforming to you know religious uh, acts and religious ritual. Now look, they have a value, they have a place. God had instituted them, but they are no substitute for devotion and, and trust and obedience. To the Lord, and that's why uh, it's a great lesson for us. May I supplement that? Sure, sure. If I may twink what you just said, I don't think God instituted rituals. Mm -hmm. There's no, the word ritual does not occur. What I mean by that is these religious exercises, the things that they were commanded to make offerings and so on. I don't mean to denigrate it, I'm just saying. 
but they were things that they were commanded if, to do. If man reduces them to mere performance, yes, uh, without mere meaning, perform- then good. they become a ritual. Exactly. Uh, but uh, only in the interest of time, of course, Saul dies, mm-hmm. and David is appointed king. There we go. And, and then we're going to read about that in a, this coming week. We're we going to are? Re- read that sounds about exciting. What are we going to read about? The transition from Saul wow. to David. Oh, it's man. not an easy transition, oh, as you my. know. Saul has been chasing G, uh, David around the planet, <laughs> around and the that, country. What a, and David has to fight. Right? David must fight have a big guy, some big strong guy. Yeah, David yeah. Uh, fights Goliath, wow. and, uh, and, and all of this is part of the story. When Saul consults with the witch of Endor. Yeah, which happens lots to be the of name things. Name of the mother in Bewitch. Not a coincidence. Oh, that very is, interesting. Uh, remember, you should always be the kind of parent, the uh, per, kind of person you would like to have. For a parent. All right. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us tonight. See you next Sunday here on the Bible Live. Dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture, and is brought to you by Crew Military Ministry. Mailing address is PO Box eighteen eight eighty eight. That's Box eighteen eight eight eight, San Antonio, Texas seven eight two one eight. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Live Quiz Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help crew military minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.